Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you again today. Uh, today, we are continuing our series uh, leading up to Easter and to uh, Easter Sunday, which is next Sunday. And today's our sixth uh, message in this series entitled, Countdown to the Cross. Today, we deal with the death and burial of Jesus. Thank you to Jamie and to Sophie for leading us so well today in such a spirit of worship and praise. I've really enjoyed being in the presence of the Lord. Let's read the text together. If you have your Bibles there or a text in front of you, turn to John chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading at verse 28, and I'm going to finish the chapter this morning. In the ESV version, these uh, sections are entitled, The Death of Jesus, Jesus' side is pierced, and Jesus is buried. John 19, verse 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another Scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, 
they laid Jesus there. John's account of the death, burial, uh, and piercing of Jesus in those last days. A few weeks ago, I mentioned a painting by um, Holman Hunt called The Light of the World. And I want to put up a picture of another painting by Holman Hunt. There it is. This one is called The Shadow of Death. This is an interesting painting um, that shows Jesus as a young man. And if you look at the picture, uh, you'll see that this is a Holman Hunt. He painted it in between 1870 and 1873. He actually went and spent some time in the Holy Land to research the architecture and the details so that he would get as much of it correct as he possibly could. But he's painted this picture of a young Jesus. Jesus here is before he has begun his messianic ministry. He's working in his father's carpentry shop. And the painting is uh, timed at the, near the end of the day. And Jesus, as you see, is tired. And as he comes near the end of the day, Jesus' muscles are sore, and so he stretches himself. And as he stretches his muscles, Holman Hunt captures the shadow behind him. And if you check the shadow, you'll see that as, he, as we look at the painting and as Jesus stretches himself, it looks in the shadow as if Jesus has been crucified. It's an interesting detail. There are lots of details in this picture that I would love to have the time to point out to you. Allow me just one more uh, 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 detail to point out to you. If you notice, well, you can't see it so well, but just to Jesus, to the left of Jesus' thigh, there's a saw still in a piece of wood. And if you follow the shadow back, just behind, just to the right of Mary, who's kneeling, you can see the shadow of the saw. And the shadow of the saw represents or depicts the head of a Roman spear. And so Holman Hunt has brought all of these biblical details into focus in his painting. Jesus' mother Mary is kneeling in the carpenter's shop. She's working at something, but her head is turned to the right. And she's not looking at Jesus, but rather she's looking at the shadow that he casts. And uh, Holman Hunt has entitled his painting, The Shadow of Death. The point of the painting is simply this, that throughout the life of Jesus, his death was always in the background. His death was always the reason for him coming into this world. And that's why I've put this painting up just to remind us of the shadow of death that covered all of Jesus' life. Because now we come to John's account of that actual death. Let me break this sermon down into three categories. The first thing I want to talk about is John's details of the death of Jesus. John's passage falls naturally into four sections. In the first section, we have the death of Jesus, where he breathes his last, or where he gives up his spirit. His last words are included here. It is finished. In the other Gospels, we hear that Jesus died and his last gasp was a loud cry. But only John tells us what he actually cried. So when Jesus said, it is finished, he didn't whisper it, but he cried it out aloud or as loud as he possibly could. 
It is finished, were the last words that he spoke. In the Gospels, there are two phrases that are used to describe the death of Jesus. One is found in Mark and Luke, Mark and Luke, where it says that he breathed his last. That's an interesting phrase because it tells us the manner of death uh, of a person who has been crucified. When a person is crucified, many of you will know this, they die of asphyxiation. A crucified person suffocates to death. And the reason for that is because having been crucified with arms outstretched and feet nailed to the cross, the muscles of the chest are always expanded. So it's easy for them to breathe in, but very difficult, if not impossible, for them to breathe out. And so what prisoners would do is they would alternate their weight from their hands hanging there where they couldn't breathe out to taking the weight on their feet, raising themselves up where that would allow them to breathe out and in, and then when the pain got so much in their ankles, they would hang again on their hands. So they would shift themselves, alternating their bodies in order to release the chest muscles, permitting them to breathe in and to breathe out. Mark and Luke record the very moment, the very moment when Jesus took his last breath. But John and Matthew use a different phrase. There they use the phrase that Jesus bowed his head and gave up his spirit. The answer of the suggestion here is that he's handing his spirit over into his father's hands. In fact, Jesus quotes um, uh, uh, Psalm 22, Into thy hands I commit my spirit. It's interesting little detail, but where it says in John's gospel that Jesus bowed his head. That's the same word that Jesus used when he was teaching. When he taught his disciples, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to bow or lay his head. It's the same word, the same Greek word. Nowhere to bow or lay his head. And here in John's Gospel, John is very uh, deliberately describing how at last, at last, Jesus has a place to lay his head. And it's a cruel cross. The next section in John's gospel tells us of what immediately uh, happened immediately after the death of Jesus. And it involves the soldiers. And it's the orders that the pilot had given that the, the legs of the soldier, the Prisoners should be broken. And it describes in these verses 31 to 34 um, how the legs of the other prisoners was broken, but how Jesus' side was pierced. Interesting detail that John has. It's no mistake that John records that when Jesus' side was pierced, both blood and water came out. Probably more accurate to describe it as blood and body fluid that came out. This is evidence that Jesus was indeed dead. Most scholars suggest that this is evidence that Jesus' heart had ruptured. And the scholars explain that this is sometimes uh, the case, that when a person goes through a tremendous trauma, 
a tremendous physical and emotional and spiritual trauma that it can actually cause their heart to rupture and that Jesus' heart had ruptured within the sac, which is called the pericardial sac, which is the, it contains the fluid that keeps the heart free to pump and, and move. And the suggestion is that when the spear penetrated Jesus' side, that it pierced or punctured the pericardial sac and touched the heart, and that the blood that had gathered in the ruptured heart, and that the body fluid or water that was in the pericardial sac it were, uh, uh, emanated from the wound that was made. So therefore blood and water came from his side. In John's details, he comes to the third section of this passage, where John deliberately speaks of his sincere truthfulness in making the record. John goes out of his way to say why, or to say rather that he has told the truth. Now, why should he do such a thing? Well, this, it is probably the case that when John's gospel was written near the end of the first century, that there was a, a heresy that was already being uh, sprung up. The heresy was called Docetism. And this heresy of Docetism said that Jesus wasn't a real human being. He wasn't actually human, but rather that he was a phantom, a ghost. And the Docetics taught that when Jesus walked along the beach at the Sea of Galilee, he left no footprints for he was a phantom. Well, John here in his gospel is putting the, me the record straight. And he's, he's depicting Jesus as a human being. Earlier, we didn't look at it today, but earlier Jesus said, I thirst. That's his humanity. And here when his side is pierced, then blood and water come out, depicting or de proving beyond a shadow of doubt that Jesus is a real man, a real human being. John's truthfulness. The final part of John's details of the death and burial of Jesus are the burial uh, record. Two people feature in this, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. Nicodemus, whom we have met earlier in the gospel in chapter 3, many months ago. Just one comment on that before we leave this part of the, the message. Uh, it seems a large amount in weight pounds, 75 Roman pounds. Uh, little, Roman pound was a little bit lighter than a normal uh, one of our pounds, but nevertheless, it was a fair amount of, of spices, myrrh and aloes. But the scholars tell us that the amount that they brought was the amount that would have been used in the burial of a king. And so it all fits together. Well, that's the first part of this message that I want to bring to you today. John's details of the death, piercing, and burial of Jesus. Then we come to John's meaning very quickly. Well, briefly, let me say that John's meaning of the death of Jesus is always tied up, as we've already seen over the weeks, with the Passover festival. So, for example, we have the timing of Jesus' death. John has it. John manipulates, if I may be permitted to use that phrase, he orchestrates the timing of Jesus' death to correspond with the slaughter or sacrifice of the 
Passover lambs that were taking place in Jerusalem so that as Jesus died, the lambs were dying. And so that's part of his meaning that Jesus' death is tied up with the significance of the Passover festival. Interesting, two other little details. The reference to his bones not being broken. You see, that goes back to Exodus when they were picking the Passover lamb for sacrifice. They were to check that the lamb's bones were not broken, that they were intact. Therefore, that's another small detail of John tying the two things up. And finally, just by way of information, isn't it interesting that they used a hyssop branch to put the sponge soaked in the sour wine to hold it to the lips of Jesus? Because back in Exodus, God had told Moses to tell the people when they'd sacrificed the lamb, back in Egypt, that they were to use a hyssop branch to dip it in the basin of blood, to put the blood on the doorposts and the lintels so that the angel of death would pass over, hence the word, that the angel of death would pass over the homes where he saw the blood on the doorposts and on the lintel. That's John's meaning. Well, that brings me then to the third and final part of what I want to say this morning and to consider John's message. We've looked at the details of his record. We've looked at the meaning of what he has to say. uh, And now we look at the message that he wants to bring for today. Because John specifically says in this passage that he wants others to believe in verse 35 that you also may believe. That's John's message for today. And I want to suggest to you that John's message for today is caught up in the last words of Jesus when he cried out with a loud voice, permit me to raise my voice. It is finished. It's finished. Now, our question today is, what's finished? What does the it refer to? That's our message for today. It's finished. Well, we could, of course, finish that story by, uh, uh, answer that question by saying that the work that Jesus had is finished. My work is finished. And we could easily apply that because it's true. The work that God, his Father, had given him to do, it had been accomplished. If we look at John 4, 34, I have come to accomplish my Father's will. John 17, 4, Jesus' work was accomplished. It was finished. His work was finished. We could say that it was the work of redemption that was finished. And all of that would be true. It's interesting, of course, that in, the, in Greek, which this is from, from which we get our English translation, the phrase, it is finished in Greek, is just one word, tetelestai. In Greek, it's just one word. What was, or how can we answer this question, uh, what was finished? Well, I want to use some words of Peter to explain what was finished and to explain John's message for today. On the day of Pentecost, on the birthday of the church, in Peter's inaugurating sermon that brought the church of Christ into existence, part of which we are today, that we belong to the church of Christ today. In his inaugurating sermon, Peter quoted from Psalm 16, verse 11, and he said this, speaking of God, he said, you make known to me the path of life. 
That's John's message for today. The path to life is finished. The path to life is open. The path to life is complete. There are no more hindrances, no more barriers, nothing left. In Acts, 20, in Acts 2, 28, Peter uses this phrase, you have made known to me the path of life. And that's what I want to use as an illustration or as a, as a picture of what Jesus means when he says it is finished. The path of life, the path to life is finished. That's the message for today. May I ask you a question? What path are you on today? What path are you on? How would you finish that sentence? As we've been preparing for this sermon, I've been praying for this moment in this sermon. I've been praying over this sermon and I've been praying about this moment. And my prayer is that wherever you hear my voice, wherever you're listening to me right now, that God, by the work of His Holy Spirit, is making known to you what path you're on. Might be a path of fear. I don't know. Might be the path of uncertainty. We are certainly all on that path, if I might put it like that. We don't know what tomorrow brings with regard to pandemics and Brexits and all the rest of it. We're on an uncertain path. I sat at my desk as I was preparing this sermon several days ago, and I began to think about the different paths that people were on. Then my mind began to search the Scriptures. Not my mind. I began to search the Scriptures. Paul talks about a path. Romans 3, 16. Paul talks about a path that is ruinous. A ruinous path. Romans 3, 16. And by that he was referring to a path that was quick to shed blood. It was a violent path. Boy, we know the path of ruin. Don't we here in Northern Ireland? Thank God, and I mean that, thank God that the troubles are not what they were back in the 70s and 80s. When so many in our province were on a ruinous path, the path of violence and of bloodshed and of murder. Paul talks about being on a ruinous path. In Numbers, Chapter 32, verse 22, the angel of God stops Balaam and his donkey. Do you remember this story? Where God stops Balaam and his donkey, and he, the donkey sees the angel before Balaam does, and eventually Balaam is, has this conversation with God, uh, the angel of God, and the angel of God says, Stop, for you're on a reckless path. A reckless path. And it's as if God was saying to Balaam there on that occasion, stop, think, don't do this. Because the path that you're on is reckless. It is a rash decision that you're making. And you're not thinking through the consequences of the choice that you will make today. I want to suggest to you, perhaps God's saying that to someone here today. Stop! 
Stop in your tracks. Don't do this. Because the path that you're on is a reckless one. Isaiah the prophet in 30, he talks about the people of God being on a rebellious path. Isaiah 30, 11, the people of God say to, say to the prophet, don't speak to us about the things of God anymore. Can't be bothered with the things of God anymore. Not interested in God anymore. Just tell us the things that we want to hear. Isaiah 30, verse 11. Because the people were on a rebellious path. Maybe there's a teenager listening to me today or someone else and you've just, if you'll forgive me putting it as bluntly as this, you've had your belly full of religion. And you're just putting your hands up and you're saying to God, you know what, I'm not interested in this path of Christianity anymore. I want to walk away from it. Listen, God says to you, stop. Because the path of religion is not the same as the path of life. The path of religion is not the same as the path that Jesus walked. Because the path that Jesus walked is the path of the Spirit. And of life and of joy and peace and so on. What path are you on today? Proverbs, Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 12. He said this, the path of righteousness is the path of life. That's the path I want us to choose today. The path to righteousness. That's what the path, that's the path that Jesus is referring to when he says it is finished. As I am interpreting the words today and trying to paint a picture for you. As Jesus said it is finished, it's the path of righteousness that he was talking about. The path to righteousness and of righteousness. As Solomon wrote in Proverbs chapter 12, the path of righteousness is life, and in its pathway there is no death, he wrote. And in its pathway there is no death. David came to a point in his life where he said this, I hate every wrong path. If I may quote the Alcoholics Anonymous for just a moment, in the uh, fellowship that is known as Alcoholics Anonymous, they often talk about a person coming to rock bottom, where they've nowhere left to go. And I want to suggest to you that that's where David is in Psalm 119, where he comes to a place, place where he says, I hate every wrong path. I remember an alcoholic friend of mine who died in faith, gave his life to Christ, lived the last uh, years of his life walking with the Lord. He said, but when he got sober and later found Christ, when he got sober, he said, I was just sick of being sick. <laughs> Interesting phrase. I was sick of being sick. That's when he reached his rock bottom. David has reached his rock bottom. I hate, he said, every wrong path. If you're there, if you're at the same place that David, if you can identify with David and say to yourself, whoever you're listening to my voice this morning, and say to, your, say to yourself, boy, I, I need to change. I wish I was in a different path. I know the path I'm on. I know that it's the wrong path. And I wish I could get onto the right path. I want to suggest to you, I want to share with you today, my dear friend, 
a word that Jesus used. And it's Jesus' word to you today. It's Jesus' word to you today. It's not a word that he shouts at you. It's not a word that he snarls at you. It's not a word that he uses in anger with you. It's a word that he speaks hope to you. Shall I tell you what the word is? It's this word. It's the word repent. He doesn't shout it. Repent. He's not angry. Repent. He's not putting you down. Repent. It's Jesus' words because that's where Jesus' preaching began. Do you know we know the very first word that Jesus ever uttered when he began his preaching and teaching career nearly 2,000 years ago? Do you know what the word was? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's Jesus' word to you today. Do you know what it means? It just means this. Change your mind. Change the way you think. Make a change. Jesus is, when Jesus says the word repent to you, he's saying this, it doesn't have to be like this. You don't have to go down this wrong path. You can change. Change your mind. Change your thinking. Repent. That's what the meaning, the root meaning of the word repent is. And that's what Jesus called you today, today. It is finished. The path to life is complete. No barriers, no hindrances, nothing to uh, complicate the thing. But how do you get on it? You get on it by repenting. By coming to this path of righteousness that leads to life and in its pathway is no death. That you come to this by repenting. Change your mind. Confess your sins. Lord, I've messed up. This path that I've been on, I've been on it for years. Lord, help me. Forgive me. I have done some awful things, Lord. I have said such cruel things. Lord, within my own family, I am like a demon, Lord. If people knew what I was like in my house, if people outside my home knew what I was like within my house, they would say I was a street angel and a house demon. Lord, I don't want to be like this. I don't like the person I've become. How did this happen to me? I'm exactly like the parent I said I would never be. And suddenly, here I am. Oh, God, I confess my sins to you this day. Have mercy on me. Cleanse me in the blood of Christ. Thank you that Jesus has opened the way to life for me. And I change my mind and want to join his path. Lord, I invite you by your Holy Spirit to come into my heart, as Paul taught in Romans, that the Holy Spirit, Lord, by your Holy Spirit, come and dwell within my heart this day as I surrender my life to you. It is finished. The path to life is free. Well, God bless you all and invite Jamie and Sophie to return as they're going to sing to us again. Let me just say a prayer as they...
make their way. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the death of Jesus today. It's a solemn day today, Lord. We don't joke about the death of Jesus. We have used solemn words, serious words today. And, and it's right and proper, Lord, that we show the respect that we need to show when we reflect upon the death of Jesus. When we reflect upon uh, Holman Hunt's painting, particularly the depiction of the head of the Roman spear that pierced the side and indeed the heart of Jesus. Oh, Father, help us to walk the path of life. Help us to find the path of life through repentance, confession, surrender, and dedicating our lives to you from this day on. Thank you, Lord, that today is the first day of the rest of my life. And I give it to you in Jesus' name. Amen.